Torrible woman and also the member of the Jabari staff team. I want to welcome you this morning to my country. I was born here, just down the road on Waiampa Road at Deepwater Bend. Um, I was born here on Torrible country and I'm lucky to have lived and worked here my whole life. Our country includes many beautiful places that have been part of the nurturing of generations of children and young people. Work that is being continued here by Jabari. I pay my respects to our elders, past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which our online audience members are gathered and pay my respect to the elders. Again, welcome to the Torbal country. Sharon, thank you very much for that. Really appreciate it. Um, and I acknowledge also that we are gathered here today uh, on Tourable Country uh, and the beautiful locations around here that are of huge significance and have been in the upbringing of children. And Jabiru is proud to uh, continue that tradition. Uh, my name is Kate White. I'm currently the interim CEO at Jabiru and just extending a very warm welcome to uh, Professor Selena Bartlett, who is uh, hosting our panel today. Uh, thanks to QUT, letting her be here for, the, for this time. Mm. And uh, there's a very impressive lineup of panellists and I know that uh, you will enjoy listening to what they have to say on this hugely important topic. So on behalf of Jabru, a warm welcome to our live and our online audiences. Please enjoy. Thank you. My name is Beck and on behalf of Jabru, I would like to welcome you here today. Jabru is proud to sponsor this important panel presentation today and aim to empower parents and educators in the tech age. We are in an era where technology seamlessly intertwines with our daily lives and the task of safeguarding our children has become increasingly complex. The digital age, abundant with its opportunities, also presents unforeseen challenges that can be daunting for parents and educators. Today, we are here to discuss and address these challenges. Together, we'll embark on a journey to empower every parent and educator with the knowledge and tools required to ensure the safety and well-being of our children in the tech age. Jabiru are trialling a new strategy in the management of our OSH services to reduce the screen time for children we have in our care. We will be focusing on providing children with evidence-based play activities which build resilience and confidence. This will be trialled in one of our new services next year and we're really excited to see the outcomes. When Selena approached me with this call to action, I immediately knew Jabiru would be as equally as passionate to share this information with as many people as possible. We are so grateful to those who made the time to come in person today and those taking the time out of their busy days to view online. We would also like to especially thank our panel members for coming to share your wealth of knowledge on such an important topic. Uh, we will be emailing everyone the recordings after today's presentation um, because I'm sure you'll also want to share this information within your networks as well. Uh, so now I'd like to introduce uh, our moderator for our panel, um, Professor Selena Bartlett. So uh, she's a neuroscientist who serves as group leader of the Neuroscience Translational Research Institute at the Queensland University of Technology. With profound expertise in brain plasticity, Selena has dedicated her career to deciphering the intricate mechanisms of the brain. Selena is the host of Thriving Minds podcast and is an expert in the impact of early childhood experiences in brain and child development. Selena has also authored a new book called Being Seen, Mastering Parenting in the Digital Age. Being Seen is a groundbreaking book that delves deep into the intricate connections between parenting in the digital age and the brain development of our children. This book is due to be released early next year, so please keep your eye out for it. 
Selena is passionate about protecting children online through arming parents and educators with tools to tackle the pandemic of child exploitation. We are privileged to have Professor Selena Bartlett sharing her insights with us today as well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here. Um, I have a heartfelt thank you to Jabiru. It's very gracious that you chose to host this event because I know it's going to have a big impact, not just for Jabiru and but for other people that will be able to access this resource that we hope to build together today. Thank you for providing the space. It is uh, Universal Children's Day, and one of our panel members suggested we should host it today. Uh, your support and dedication to this cause are admirable and commendable and absolutely urgently needed. To our uh, esteemed panel members, your expertise today and giving up your time to be here uh, to share your insights and also for us to work collaboratively together to really start to protect and save our children. I'm so greatly appreciative that you did that for all of us. Thank you. Uh, to everyone present, thank you for being here, anyone live, and for anyone that's going to listen to this, um, that's going to live stream out on Parent TV later, we really thank you for listening, giving up your time and starting to listen to what's actually really going on so that we can really drive a change in Australia because our children really need us. So we have two panels today. We decided to do two panels because we want to focus on the problem first to illuminate uh, what's actually really going on out there. And that's the expertise of Conrad Townsend, who's, been, who's an expert in this space and he works for IFYS. And then Trisha Munn, who's the second panel member, she's been working for at least 12 years trying to help people secure social media and their phones and recognise how to do that. And I thought that was incredibly important to bring these two people together because we need to secure the children first before we start and also then safeguard the organisations. And that's, that will be the second panel presentation is then to, to focus on the organisations and also the support when you have people coming to you and you don't know what to do, you feel really lost. So that's why we put this whole thing together today is there's all these people doing things separately, but we need to start working together because it's such a huge problem we're about to face, or we are already facing as Conrad's going to tell us about. I just want to put it out there. We're going to be touching on topics for anyone that's just tuning in now that might be uh, triggering for you. Uh, we just want to let you know that if that is the case, please reach out to Lifeline or to other places if you're finding that. So some of the topics are going to be a little bit sensitive. So we just want to warn you about that in case you're turning this on. I don't know where you're going to be watching it or who you're going to be watching it with. So please just be aware that we're about to touch on very sensitive topics. Thank you for joining us. So let's get started. So Conrad, when I met you not very long ago, which I'm ashamed to say, <laughs> as a Queenslander, and you're living not far from me on the Sunshine Coast, you alerted me to something that I was not aware of and that I feel really quite ashamed of that. Um, Madonna King's new book, Saving Our Kids, in that book, she quotes a percentage, uh, and this is really well-researched book over a decade or more. She quotes and states that only 3% of parents, and I'm a parent too, believe the issue of online exploitation is prevalent in Australia for one. 
Secondly, they think it's everyone else's children as well. And you alerted me to that, and I was shocked. And my kids are grown. So I was immediately like, let's hit the urgency alarm bell buttons, because this is really terrible that Australia is the leading country. So can you share with the people listening what you shared with me? And uh, let's talk about the problem in Australia. Yeah, uh, thanks, Selena. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting one, because the, the statistic that you just quoted there, the 3%, I had to double check when I first read that. That was actually a piece of federal police research that was undertaken uh, back in 2020, it would be now. And they surveyed parents and carers across Australia to actually see what their view was of the online world. Um, and also to really get a litmus test to how uh, adults in general across Australia viewed risk in the online world. Uh, and so when I first saw that statistic, I actually made inquiries with the federal police to double check that there hadn't been a digit missed. Um, I was absolutely gobsmacked, and, and it is, it's 3%. Three, 3%. So what, what it, it is essentially saying is that only 3% of parents and carers believe that groom, online grooming is something they should be worried about for their own children. Now, in the world I work in, that's a real concern uh, because I can tell you now that the, the risks are um, massive in the online world. We know actually that the risks online are no different to offline when it comes to things like uh, exploitation and grooming. Um, coupled with that, there's another statistic that they quote of um, the fact that only six, uh, so 69% of parents and carers assumed that their children would tell them if something negative happened to them online. And the problem we have with that is the research tells us pretty clearly that's not the case. So we know that actually young people are more likely to talk to their friends or reach out to other, other people for help when something goes wrong. And if you don't mind me, before we move over to Tricia to expand, I would also love you to tell people just your, the depth of expertise you have in this space and that you came here from Wales to Australia only seven years ago and you were shocked to see how little safeguarding and, and knowledge was here in Australia because you were not going to do this anymore. You are going to have no. a break. No, and I think right. that's really important yeah. to lay out just the depth of your um, knowledge and expertise in this space. Yeah, so I, I'm, I, I'm not a huge fan of the term expert. I, I, um, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, but I, I, I was shocked. So historically, I worked specifically uh, prior to coming to Australia. I worked in the UK um, specifically with child sexual exploitation and missing children. Uh, and there are formal protocols that exist in the UK for addressing the issue both in offline and online contexts. And when I arrived, it, I, I came to Australia for a sea change. I thought I'd spend a significant amount of time working in that pointy end of child protection, so predominantly with child sexual abuse. And I decided I've done my bit. Um, it, it takes its toll. And I thought it's time for a sea change. Apart from anything else, I'm from Wales. 
and I wanted to live in a warmer climate. <laughs> so uh, got to Australia, worked in the family support space uh, as a team leader, uh, and I kept seeing these cases popping up everywhere. And I would say to people in, in the sector that I work with, colleagues, I'd say, what's the protocol for dealing with this case? And everyone would look at me and go, what do you mean? Well, we've got a clear case of child sexual exploitation. So this is a young person being sexually exploited in their community. So what are the mechanisms? What are the formal protocols? What are the multi-agency protocols for this? And I kept getting the same response, and that was, well, we don't actually have any. And that was really a watershed moment for me because I realized that we had a real problem, not just in the absence of protocols, but also the understanding of the fact that there was even an issue in Australia with, with child exploitation. And part of, the issue, part of the problem with that is it's fed by the federalized system that we have. So state and territory governments are responsible for what we call contact offending, and then the Commonwealth government, federal government, they have offences that deal with the online world and um, things like border security, trafficking, that kind of stuff. So what that it actually did was feed this narrative that exploitation and trafficking is only something that happens overseas or in the online world. Um, the problem we have is there's no recognition within that context of the intersection between offline and online. And so I frequently see cases that I work with where we'll see young people groomed in an online context, but then they'll meet up with the offender or the perpetrator offline. And then we have this disconnect between how agencies interact with one another. Yeah. So let's move to Tricia, you've been working in this space for a while. Do you want to tell us about why you came in to do trying to safeguard uh, like security, privacy on the social media setting? Um, I um, had intricate knowledge of how to use privacy settings, but I was working in a marketing space and was not my passion at all. But I had uh, three teenage children and they all wanted to get onto Facebook. And um, you know, it was back in the day when Facebook was our only thing, and MSN Messenger, actually. <laughs> uh, it was a while ago. And, um, and I kept going to try to find information on how to keep my children safe because I knew there was a problem. And what I kept coming up with um, or against was a lack of actual practi practical knowledge. It was all about you know, telling us what the problem was but not giving us the solution. So um, I woke up, literally woke up one morning and thought, you know what, everything I'm doing is making everything go viral if I practice and test and, and flip that around in reverse. I'll be able to um, help people to make it more secure. So I then went off and did um, some case studies on everything I could find about what had gone wrong for people. And what I discovered was whether we're talking about cyberbullying, predators, identity theft scams, it all comes down to too much information. So that's where I built the um, programs around adding privacy and security and really um, knowing what, what that is and how to do it. And then I got, uh, I met Trish and I followed a lot of her videos 
and some of the video examples she gives for parents out there listening, all of us are parents or grandparents or know someone that is. I try and do research into, if I'm going to a school, I look up the school on social media sites and look at what the kids are saying about themselves. So, and I actually go in under my, you know, there's no pretense about who I am. And um, what's really interesting is just how much they share in that public space. You know, it's so, A, so easy to say, you know, I'm in this area and I want to find children in this area and I can just get in there and go, here they all are. So, so, for, so for parents listening, yeah, what is, and you're a parent, I'm a parent, uh, and I've now learnt more too because my daughter's now 22 but reveal things that I had no idea about. <laughs> um, tell me what, maybe just focus on one thing that parents might be shocked to know about. Um, well, actually, Conrad just brought it up with the lack of children telling parents stuff. Um, I actually work, I've just done a big run of primary schools, actually, and um, I go into schools every day. And one of the questions I always ask is, who has ever seen something inappropriate on the internet? And all the hands go up. And I say, who immediately went to their adults and said, look at what I just found? And the kids look at me like, no way. Like, you know, do you even believe that we would do that? And so I actually asked who, I asked the question, who has told an adult that they saw inappropriate stuff? And there would be a couple of hands at, you know, there's some schools I go to where there's a few more hands, but most schools, there's only a handful of hands that go up saying they've talked to adults. Um, and the reason that they don't talk to their adults is because, because we talk about it they always say that they're not talking to their adults because they'll lose their device. And so I then very clearly explain to the children that it's not their responsibility to not see something inappropriate. It is their responsibility to manage that or deal with that responsibly if they've been given an internet-enabled device. So they're not to look for it. And if they see it, they need to manage it responsibly and talk to the adults. But the kids just think that the adults, there's this really, and, and when I ask them the question, I actually say to children, have your parents actually said, if you see something inappropriate, we're taking your device? And the children say, no, I just know that that's how my parents would work. So, so, so this, so that's frightening. They're making up a story. They're yeah, I, and I'm seeing this because I'm, I'm on all of the uh, parenting and the tech world Facebook groups from America because I spent a long time in America. My son's in San Francisco. And so they're about five years ahead in, that, in the sense that my daughter was 14 there and they were doing Snapchat then. But yeah. now what they're doing over there in reaction to what we're now facing here is they're setting up things like bark phones uh, where their phones where, with parental controls. But, but even with all of that, is a, they call it the whack-a-mole. Um, where they, they find one and they're messaging each other on calculators. So they have calculator apps and all sorts of things. So they can get around anything is what you yeah. probably see. But So I want to put this out to Conrad um, because we need to do something. It's, we, we've laid out the problem. It's a big problem. Australia is one of the leading countries because we're wealthy. Uh, and that's why we're being extorted too. So 10 to 17-year-old boys are being extorted. But let's let's because the parents are listening, they want to know what to do because I know that there are a lot of parents because they're confidentially saying that this is happening for them. So you said to me that, and I'm sure you'll agree with this too, Tricia, it's much smarter as for a parent or an organisation or educators to believe 
that your child is actually at risk of grooming and sextortion or extortion, they're not. And so do you want to elucidate why you told me that? And maybe we should talk about some of the common tactics and strategies uh, that people are doing online now to target our young children. And why, why we're having this event is because September of 2023 is significantly larger a problem than September of 2022. Mm. And there's so many cases, police can't keep on top of them. So that's why the only safeguards right now for children is parents, because it's happening in bedrooms and bathrooms. So that's why we're also running this event too. So if you want to expand on what you told me about that. Yeah. Uh, so for parents, what could they look out for? What would you recommend they should do? So, so I, I think the first thing, uh, going back to your earlier point, the first thing we do need to understand is your child is more likely to see something than not. Once you accept that and you sit with that and acknowledge that, it means you're then able to go, okay, so the chances are this is going to happen. How am I then going to respond or react when it does? And actually, more importantly, can my child approach me if it does? Am I going to explode and overreact or am I going to be measured so that they feel comfortable in actually talking to me? Um, that is really, really important because that can actually determine the outcome. It can go either way. So if a young person does not feel comfortable enough to talk to a protective adult about what's happened, especially parents, then they're not going to. That's the simple fact of it. Which means we have to make sure that we have a relationship built on trust and that if we don't currently feel like we have one, we start working on that relationship. We start looking at ways in which we can build trust with our children, um, because that ultimately is the way forward. Um, if we work on the assumption they're going to see something or something negative is going to happen, we want them to be able to reach out to somebody who can help them constructively. Um, it's far better if it's parents and carers, because that means they're going to get more of, of uh, that support that they need. Um, we need to also understand that the world that they're navigating is not the same world that we navigated when we were their age. The exposure they have to content and the rate at which they're being exposed is astronomical. And just to give you an idea of that, it's actually extremely common for a young person to receive a thousand messages per day. Now, for me, I struggle to keep up with the maybe 80 emails I might get over the course of a day and then some texts in between. Um, so that's a thousand messages. Now they're being bombarded. They're being bombarded with information from all sides, which means they're having to work out what's safe, what's not safe. They're actually trying to do that problem solving. They don't necessarily realize that they're having to do that problem solving. So the conversations we have with them to prepare for those moments is really critical. Um, it's worth us actually thinking about the, um, the way in which we convey messaging as well. If we do it punitively, where they feel like they're going to get into trouble, then the chances are they're not going to tell us. Um, your worst case scenario is they actually seek help from people that we wouldn't want them seeking help from, so unsafe people. And we see that frequently, especially when you've got young people who are seeking answers around things like sexual identity, 
um, you tend to find predominantly young people who, who sit in that space are less likely to talk to a family member. They're likely to seek that information elsewhere. Now, when I was a child growing up, I didn't have Google. So if a child now wants any information, they will immediately go to search for it on the internet. And it's no coincidence that um, if you talk to Kids Helpline, they see when, when they see young people interacting with their platform online, um, the word sex appears a lot. And it doesn't immediately mean that young people are searching for, for sex per se or looking to actually seek information that takes them to sexual content. They're seeking information about sex. That's no different to Google. So what we tend to see with young people is they will type in the first few letters of something if they want more information about a bigger subject. And sex tends to sit at the front of a lot of subjects that young people are seeking information on. So when we understand that, it means that we're essentially knowing that our young people are going to be trying to access information elsewhere a lot of the time. The more we can equip ourselves with that information and actually be available and accessible to them, um, the higher the likelihood they're going to come and have that conversation with you first. And Tricia, do you want to expand on that? Because this is what I, when I broached this topic, I went a bit nuts when I heard how bad it was in Australia, as anyone that's met me in the last two months <laughs> can attest to. I have to calm down, I've been told. But when people... No, uh, I like no, the don't, message that night. Say, don't saying, calm down. It has to be. But, um, it has to be straight away. Yeah, but... <laughs> What, what I found, and you must really yeah. get this a lot, people hate this topic. Yes. They do not want to know about this. Yeah. Well, we run parent sessions and um, yeah, regularly for schools, and schools pay good money to have a parent session, and the schools are always bitterly disappointed with how many um, parents will actually turn up. And I think that is a bit of, um, you know, I think there is a bit of guilt because we've handed our children devices and we, we're not equipped and, you know, we don't want to hear that we've given them something that um, could be potentially harmful. Um, but I come back to really basic steps with my um, practical steps that the, the parents can take. One thing that we, um, that I always start with is having a family agreement and so I always talk about having a family agreement. I've got a template. I had a word template that was really ugly, so I made a really pretty one that I made it for primary school age children and then decided actually it fits for everybody and it's easy to see in amongst papers. I've put aside that you can laminate it and put it on the fridge so you can earn more time on screens and whatnot. But the, the idea of having that family agreement is not just about setting rules and walking in and saying to your children, these are the rules around this. No. It's about actually sitting down and looking at every single part of that, that agreement with your child and having a conversation about why that needs, this needs to be in the agreement and coming up with a solution that works for both. And then both people, it's the whole family. It's, it's a conversation. Everyone has to yeah. abide by it. You can't. Buy in. Everyone has to buy in and everybody is in, invested in their own solution. So the children are invested in their own solution. Mm. And so I make sure, so I walk, when I, when I go and do this, I work for community care organisations and I do family consultations. I often turn up to crying children. I, they think this woman's <laughs> going to walk in and ruin my life. 
And the first thing I do is I say, actually, I'm going to give you some power. You want screen time, you can earn it. This is, and we sit down, we have a conversation. Once I understand that this is in place to help them to stay safe, they are then okay with that. And I give them a minimum amount of time and then they earn more time and, because we've got the screen addiction stuff in there as well. So it's about safety and um, equipping children with the ability to regulate themselves. So we start with the agreement and then when we set parental controls, the parental controls are not there to restrict the child. They are there to support the agreement that the child has made. So when we set parental controls, the parental controls actually sit outside of our um, agreement. So let's say the child gets 30 minutes of screen time. The parental controls don't kick in until 45 minutes, which gives the child the opportunity to self-regulate. And if they self-regulate, they then get rewarded by whatever we've agreed the rewards are. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a much more powerful way of assisting a child. And the other thing that goes with this agreement and the um, family and the parental controls being put in place is a conversation has started. And I always say to the parents, could you pop in, what day are you definitely all at the table? Pop in your calendar a reminder to have a conversation about safety and social media. And all these things that we've talked about, pop it in your diary every week for a period of time until it becomes a natural thing to talk about. Great. Because that breaks down the barriers for the children um, to go to the adults. It's such a great idea and I see that working really yeah. well. We're going to touch on a really sensitive subject uh, as we head to the close because I think this is really, really important and I hope you don't mind but this is because we have an expert here on child uh, sexual exploitation. We have to touch on this topic because what people won't want to hear but what is really going on online. Money out of free children's material online right now and what we now know is that if you're across how these networks work, they have to upload new material every month to stay part of a club. This is outlined in Madonna's book, Saving Our Kids. John Rouse is the expert. He set up the first task force in Queensland. So I think we need to tell you why it's such a big deal. Why online? Because Australia has no security. In our smartphones are the most dangerous devices ever invented and in a, we don't have any security on them and kids are getting them. As you see, if you go out in a restaurant right now, you'll see kids on phones, parents' phones, and they're really digitally smart. And so I've seen 18-month-olds navigating YouTube. And from a neuroscience perspective, you have to understand that this is changing their brain development. There are papers now coming out showing it causes changes in their sex hormones. And as Conrad alluded to me, there are now five-year-olds in Australia on porn sites, and that material is being sold for free around the world. So do you want to expand? Because this is a, I know it's a tough subject, but it's a very, very important one because otherwise people think it's some frivolous. No, it's not, because once that material's out there, it's very hard to get it back. They're changing the legislation in the UK now, aren't they, to make it illegal to sell if that material's out there in some cases. And um, kind of a new legislation that I just read. Well, they, they, they've, they've implemented online age verification to be able to interact with uh, adult sites, so such as pornography and, and other 
type sites. Um, Australia was looking to implement it, but um, the plug has been pulled on that recently, which personally I'm not happy about um, because I think every little bit we can do can help and should we should be looking to help. I think the reality is, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier, Selena, the, you know, when we look at the federal police stats uh, and just how big an issue this is, um, I go back to that earlier statement and, and, and what we see every week is hundreds of reports coming into federal police about Australian children being exploited or uh, uh, abused online. Um, just to give you a feel for how significant it's escalated, how significantly it's escalated, um, 2018 we had roughly an annual reporting of about 17,500 reports a year to the Federal Police concerning children in Australia. We're now sat at around 37,000 annually. So we've seen a more than doubling of figures. Now, they're Australian kids. They're somebody's children. They're, you know, and, and so when we look at the size of Australia, we look at the population size, we're sat at getting on for 27 million. That's actually a high proportion when you start to look at your demographics and your breakdown. Um, now, if we know that we're seeing that, it means that we need to work on that, the basis that we need to step up as adults, as protective adults, and we, t we need to implement strategies. I think some of the stuff that Trish has talked about there is the practical stuff is really important because um, it, you're not going to catch every single case. You're not going to stop every single instance. But what you will do is you will reduce the, the chances. And that's what it's about. And I think the biggest thing in all of this is actually building connection with, with kids. Um, because if in the majority of cases I see and have seen in my career where children are being exploited, they're seeking connection away from their protective environments. So we need to, we need to essentially look at how we're going to meet that unmet need. And that starts from within the family unit. Um, we have also have a big problem in the sense that the exposure and the rate at which young people are being exposed to harmful material, big issue. So by the age of 13 in Australia, 69% of boys are accessing porn. It's one of the highest rates in the world. So we're batting way above our weight um, on the world stage when it comes to something like that. Now, now what makes that stat worse is what we know from the research is the younger an individual views that content, there's an increased likelihood that they will display unwanted behave, sexualized behavior towards the opposite sex. So we see this direct correspondence between exposure to material and then an acting out. Now I, I deal, I interact with sexual assault services across the country and they have re reported in the last three years a massive escalation in cases of teenagers presenting um, with physical harm as a result of what they're trying to act out in what they've been viewing or um, their peer group have been viewing. That's now normalized. So a lot of pornography is normalized for young people. That's, that's the harmful end. So if we're not in, uh, using some of these strategies that Trish talks about in that practical context, 
we're actually not doing everything we could possibly do to mitigate against that. So as we head to the close, um, we'll finish on a great note to say that without awareness, nothing changes. Yeah. So we're doing this not to scare you, but to raise the, open the curtain and for us to have these healthy conversations because we're all Australians and we want to protect our children. It's their future, gener it's the future generations. They're not, it's fair enough you've got your own children, but all of our children are our country. So this is what this panel's about, is to open the curtain, raise awareness. So as we close, Trish, would you like to summarise or say anything that we haven't covered yet? Um, and thank you for you creating this opportunity for people. Uh, we have a resources handout that will go out and will be available as a PDF too, which talks about family tech plans and tech-free zones and really practical, simple strategies for anyone to try as well. So would you like to summarise as we head to the close? Um, really reiterate that it's you know, critical to open those conversations with children. Um, if you're working with children, you know, sort of encouraging children to talk to adults, I always say to the children, go home, jump in the car today and tell your, your parents that you saw me today and it's really important that you talk about social media on a regular basis. Um, opening the conversations from a parent's point of view with their children and getting across the platforms. Even if a parent is completely not tech savvy, if they have a look at the child's account, there's three things that they need to look for. Is my, is my child identifying their age, sex, location on the outside of their account? Because that's the first thing you know, that a, a predator online is going to be looking for a demographic of people. So age, sex, location on their profile is really a critical step. step. And I think any parent that was looking at their child's account, even if they didn't know that that was something they've, they've got to look for, they would immediately feel that, oh, that's personal details, maybe that shouldn't be there. So a parent just needs to, to be involved and in having a look, have those um, agreements in place, parental controls, super important. Um, and one of the things that I see on a regular, regular basis in, in family consultations is I'm called in to help and then I have parents say, oh no, that can stay on there because my child's, I know they're really good, they won't go looking for anything important, um, you know, or any of these things that you're talking about, no, bring it in and release it as they're older and their brain has developed and they've got the ability to manage the content. Um, great example, most kids in schools are telling me that they're using YouTube, not YouTube mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Hor horrifying. And I know horrifying. AI. Little children. I've heard and, a lot about that. And devices in bedrooms. Devices don't mm. go in bedrooms. Um, John in Rouse. bathrooms. So yeah, a lot John, of the John sharing Rouse of material really is happening in bedrooms and bathrooms. So that's also something. Never let yeah. a child have a, their phones in their bedroom or in the bathroom. In the bathrooms, yeah. Yeah, because that's where they, they're taking it. And even, you know, it, at, like I, I was actually just saying to my husband this morning that I've got an iPad that my little person is allowed to use and it's locked up. She can't get on... Safari or, or YouTube or anything like that. But we still need to make sure that she doesn't go into the bedroom because there will come a day when she will have access to more things and it needs to be in place now because it's easier yeah. to let things out than it is to yeah. rein things in. Because most parents that come to me for help, 
their children are 12, 13, yeah. 14 years old. Yeah. And it should be actually happening when the child gets the device, not later on. Because yeah. we want to work together. Yeah. We're all doing separate things, but we need to come together on this issue to pre protect our children. So as we close um, this panel, I'm so grateful for your time and your expertise, Conrad and Tricia, and everything you're doing to do this for us. Really, really important. So thank you. And thank you thank for you. coming back into the game. Because I know that <laughs> I know that's really hard work. I I'm know. a little bit sad that I don't get to dip oh. out. I was planning on dipping out soon. Once yes. they, we've, I did think about stacking shelves. Uh, yes, many Aldi. people. Yes, <laughs> I, I think bet. it'd be easier. Yeah. yeah. So um, burying my head in the sand with everyone else—that would be awesome. I know. I think Let's about go. that every day as well. But you know, our children need us. So thank you uh, for coming to do the panel today and. If anyone needs to contact you, we have the links. There'll be a resources sheet. We'll have lots of email contacts. And we'll be putting this out on Parent TV, but also on a podcast. We'll be making this available as far and wide as possible. So thank you for sharing your expertise and your time today. We're really, really grateful. Thank you. So welcome.